Welcome to today's edition of Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast is being brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. Amos 6, we'll begin reading in verse 6, that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive, and the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. The Lord God hath sworn by himself, saith the Lord the God of hosts, I abhor the excellency of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore will I deliver up the city with all that is therein. And it shall come to pass, if there remain ten men in one house, that they shall die. And a man's uncle shall take him up, and he that burneth him, to bring out the bones out of the house, and shall say unto him that is by the sides of the house, Is there yet any with thee? And he shall say, No. Then shall he say, Hold thy tongue, for we may not make mention of the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commandeth, and he will smite the great house with breaches, and the little house with clefts. Shall horses run upon the rock? Will one plow there with oxen? For ye have turned judgment into gall, and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. Ye rejoice in a thing of naught, which say, Have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? But, behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of the wilderness. If you would throw your ribbon in here and let's move over to the New Testament for introduction in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, the very early days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And we find that he's calling people into his flock. And so we look into Matthew 4 verse 18. Matthew 4.18, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And straightway they left their nets. Now that's an astonishing way of evangelism, isn't it? I don't think that we do that very often. And if we did, we probably wouldn't have the same response that he had. Jesus comes and was walking by these men who are blue-collar fishermen. They're out working, doing their business. Jesus says to follow me, and they do. They leave their nets. They walked off the job that day, and more than that, they actually left their careers. Now what's interesting about that is, is that didn't happen in a vacuum, of course, because just recently, if you back up to verse 17, Jesus says a very monumental statement 
that would be to the Jew. He says in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that is a huge statement to say, being that the Jews for years and for centuries had expected the golden age. They expected the kingdom to come, this glorious time, the, the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. They were looking for that. They were looking for the deliverer to come. So to hear these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is monumental. Now, that in itself didn't happen in a vacuum, neither. Because really, if you think about it, it was only some 30 years prior to this that something very mysterious happened out in the village of Bethlehem. Some say that a king was born. Some actually say that it, it is the coming deliverer, possibly even the Messiah himself. And we know that that didn't happen in a vacuum because at the very words of that proclamation, Herod the king slaughters hundreds if not thousands of children. So that happened only three decades prior. And it's still looming, this mysterious something happened out in Bethlehem. We're not exactly sure. And then here, 30 years later, here comes this rabbi making this proclamation. So when you put those things together, it isn't just piecemeal. Something is happening. So much so that this rabbi comes up to a few fishermen who are making good money at their jobs, says, follow me. And they actually leave their jobs that day. Did you do that when you came to Christ? Did you say, if this be true, I ought to follow him with all of my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and not even worry about making money? Verse 21, it says, And going on from thence, she saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother in the ship, with Zebedee their father. Now, the boys probably don't recall that mysterious thing that happened in Bethlehem because they probably too were just being born. But Zebedee was certainly aware of what took place, their dad. So then this same rabbi comes to them and they are mending their nets and he called them and they too immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Now these men leave a very lucrative family business. I mean, this isn't just hired hands. These are the owner's sons. They are a little more wealthy than the average, but it doesn't deter them. They leave their nets, leave their jobs, abandon their career to follow a rabbi. Now, these are unlearned. Un they're not religious. They're just average fishermen. So if you go a couple pages to the right to Matthew 8... We find that it happens again. Now, this rare occasion actually happens to a religious person. Jesus didn't have much time for religious people. But in this case, one in particular, a scribe who would be learned in, in the Word of God. He is a, a writer. He makes copies. He's a scribe of the different copies of the Word of God. It says in verse 19 of chapter 8, a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And look at the response that Jesus gives to him. Jesus said unto him, 
The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. In other words, if you're going to follow with and ride in, in my band, we're homeless. This is a scribe who likely is wealthy. You want to follow me, just so that we're clear here, um, I'm uh, not in it for the money. Uh, I'm not the silver-haired, silver-tongued guy on TV that is after the old people for their retirement. Actually, what he says is, is if you're going to follow me, it's, you're going to have to give up quite a bit, and you're going to have to learn to sacrifice things. That is completely un-American. In fact, look what he says to the next guy. Verse 21. Another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. I'll follow you too, but my father just recently passed away. So before we get started on this, uh, let me just attend his funeral. Jesus, look at his response. But Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Now, if your pastor were to say something like that, You would be like, uh, yeah, there's uh, five churches on the way here, and I'm going to relocate. <laughs> Christianity is considerably different in our minds than what it is in a biblical realm. These men left their jobs. They left their careers. They sold out. They became homeless. They went through this, and you think to yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute. What would cause someone to be so committed and then immediately after all this, we find that Matthew records for us an exercise. It's a very familiar one, in fact. Verse 23, it says, And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, for we perish. And he responds unto them, Why are ye so fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men are marveling at this. It is an eerie calm. The men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Those men at that point went through that exercise very early in their faith to cement their belief. You're giving up an awful lot. You know what happens the next day? Is their wives talk. What are you doing? Are you out of your mind? Have you seen the bills on my desk? What do you mean you quit and following some rabbi? And then he puts his head on his pillow going, oh boy, maybe I, maybe I made a big mistake. I don't know you know about this. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He's up all night long. So the next day they get in a boat. But when that boat ride is over, those men believed. Right in the middle of 1776, a group of men uh, wrote a letter to the crown. Within the letter that they wrote, they put in grievances and they put in that letter a, uh, not only grievances, but a non-compliance note. The interesting thing is, before they wrote that letter, England put out a warning to those who would think of traitors, and they said they would be hung. 
but this was a different warning than normal treason. This time England put out the note that said anybody thinking of treason will be hung, but we won't hang them to death. In fact, what we will do is we will hang them, and before they die, we will actually disembowel them, pull out an organ, show it to their face while they're still alive, and then cut them into four pieces. That letter that they wrote was the Declaration of Independence. Those men, when you look at that document and you see John Hancock written bold and clear, what those men did is they signed their death certificates. Why? Because they believed in it. The apostles signed up because they believed it. And they all gave their lives for it. All of the apostles died bringing the faith, except for John the Beloved, who was banished to Patmos and burned alive in oil. But he survived. Why? Because they believed it. Do you believe the things that we have written in our laps? Let's go to Amos 6 then. And we'll see. Because you don't know what you're made of until you're put to a test. You'd be surprised how many men that I thought were halfway brawny and then uh, put them into a situation where stress levels rise to the point of gray hair and they'll cry. Literally. I saw a man sitting on steps on a construction project crying deleting every picture out of his phone. He was so distraught under the stress of the project. We are entering into rough seas. Whether you like it or not, whether you ask for it or not, this country is heading into rough seas. And brothers, we are the lifeboats. There are no other. So our constitution needs to be strong. Our brawn needs to be there. We need to believe what we say that we believe. When we come into Amos, we know we've already studied. We're halfway through the book by now. And, and I must say, I thank you all for sticking with us. Because some of the, so the, sometimes the ship gets a little less oars being moved as you move through these Old Testament books. But one thing that you notice here, and now that we're halfway through Amos, one thing that you will notice now is, you know, halfway through here, we are nowhere told or instructed to believe. Nowhere in the book of Amos are we told to believe. It's God's word. Amen. Believe it or not, like it or not, it is God's word. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not or like it or not. It is God's word and it will always stand. Amen. The day of Amos is a lot like ours. We've already gone through a lot of the parallels. In fact, if you were to jump a chapter ahead, which I don't want to do too long, but look in chapter 7, in the end of verse 10, it says that the land is not able to bear all his words. Our land currently, if you look at the pulpits and what comes out of most of the bulk of the pulpits, they cannot bear the word of God. If you were to take these sermons that we are going through in Amos, that preacher would be fired or hung. Amen. 
They cannot bear it. Look at it in verse 13 of the same chapter. They tell him, prophesy not again anymore. Stop it. We can't handle it. We, like Amos, have a scourge of corruption in our government. So the Lord says, woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. Why? Because though the government be corrupt, there is a whole lot more citizenry beneath that can rise up with righteousness if we believe what we believe. The question is then, do you really believe these things? Because he says, woe unto you that are at ease in Zion. So when we come into our portion of the passage of Scripture for today, we find that there are rich people that are comfortable. They are highly capable. Some of them are part of the problem because they are in the politics. Some of them are part of the problem because they're just doing nothing. They are at ease. They are just comfortable. They are mediocre Christians. But when we come into this, at the bottom of verse 6, it says, Yes, they are drinking wine in their bowls, and they anoint themselves with chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Why? Because they didn't believe. They don't believe the word of God. They don't. Not enough to risk their lives. Not enough to sign a declaration of independence. Certainly not enough to walk on water. Lord, if it's you, bid me come. But they weren't. And they didn't. They are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore, now shall they go captive. Again, do not think that we are safe because we have the Atlantic and the Pacific beside us. We are only safe because our God is the champion. But we are his only hands and feet. There are no other. So because of this, God is telling us in advance the modus operandi of what happens Therefore, now shall they go captive with the first that go captive, and the banquet of them that stretched themselves shall be removed. He's talking specifically in verse 7 of the wealthy elitists that caused the problem. They stretched themselves out in banquets. The, the, the Middle Eastern culture in those days, the banquets were lavish parties, but you would lay on a couch and stretch yourself out while the peasants and the servants anointed your feet and gave you a, a, with oil. And then it was debauchery and, and different immoral things would take place for these wealthy people who sit high on their ivory tower. They will go captive first. But we have a small problem here because God reigns on the just and on the unjust. Verse 8, The Lord God hath sworn by himself, saith the Lord, the God of hosts. Again, his, his military might. I abhor the excellency of Jacob and hate his palaces. Specifically, he's talking of the excellency of Jacob is the governmental and religious affairs, the leaders of the world. These would be the people in the beltway. 
in their palaces. God says, I abhor them. I hate their palaces. Therefore, will I deliver up the city with all that is therein. And it gets worse in verse 9. It shall come to pass that if there remain ten men in one house, that means this is a large, sprawling house. Many, many men live there. It could just be ten literal, but he could be using a figure of speech in the Hebrew where it means that there's a large number, ten men. But even so, a house that has ten men living inside means there's a minimum of ten families living in one house. This is a large, sprawling mansion. But he says, in this mansion... They shall die. He gives more details. Verse 10. And a man's uncle shall take him up. And he that burneth him. In other words, his next of kin is coming. Everyone in that house, the whole family is gone. So an uncle, the next of kin arrives to take care of the funeral arrangements. But it isn't a normal Hebrew funeral. Normal Hebrew funeral is a burial. There's no burial here, notice. He burns them. Do you know why they would burn them? Because it's according to Leviticus law. Because a plague went through. Killed them all. A pestilence. And you would burn them to contain the pestilence from the rotting corpses that are now piled up all throughout this city. There are piles of corpses and the bugs and the flies, the mosquitoes, are all circling around and it's becoming a pestilence. Does that not make you wonder when you watch fake news when Ukraine, a third world corrupt country, has bio labs? What, why are they researching bioweapons? Just asking for a friend. <laughs> The pestilences come from somewhere. The plagues come from somewhere. Man is deprived enough to make it ourselves. We will be our own destruction. We only stand because God is gracious letting us live. But if he removes his hand of grace, we'll just destroy ourselves. So this this uncle has to come. He comes up and he burns him to bring out the bones out of the house and shall say unto him that is by the sides of the house, is there yet any with thee? And you can see the man crouching and looking into the door of the house. He doesn't want to go in, you know, because he knows it's the pestilence. And he crouches and he says, is there anybody else in there? And you find this guy who's hiding in the sides petrified, looks like a skeleton because he hasn't eaten anything and he is just skin and bones and and you can hear his whimper. I'm the only one here. And the PTSD is so bad and the anxiety is so bad that they are mentally wrecked. Look what they say. He he calls unto him that is by the sides of the house, is there yet any with thee? And he shall say, no. But look what he says then. Then shall he say, hold thy tongue, for we may not even make mention of the name of the Lord. Why? Because they know that this is the cup of fury that is coming from God's hand. And so at this time they are trembling with anxiety at the fact of what they have seen and what they have experienced. So much so 
Don't even say God's name lest the worst thing happen to us. Remember earlier in Amos, the guy gets away, huffing and puffing, running for his life, and he leans on a wall and a serpent bites him. You cannot get away from the wrath of God when it is being poured out. You cannot. There is no safety. Who do you ask to protect you when the God of heaven is against you? There is none. Don't even make mention of the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commandeth. They know. They know. They all know. That's why the last thing anybody wants is a church of Jesus Christ with word of God in hand to stand up. Causes devils to tremble. They know that the Lord himself is at the helm and the Lord commands. For behold, the Lord commandeth and he will smite the great house with breaches and the little house with clefts. Whether you're rich or poor, the creeping death seeps in through the cracks and no one survives. And then Amos, he, he's doing all that he can. The preacher is trying to get everyone's attention, right? That's what he does here. Amos does the same thing, and he does it in a form that's it's rhetoric. Look what he says. He, he says in verse 12, Shall horses run upon rock? Will one plow there with oxen? But are you stupid? That's what he's saying in his own Hebrew. That's what he meant. He goes, so what are you, what are you, dumb? I go, do, do you make horses run on rocks? Of course not. They'll break their leg and fall and you'll, you'll crush the horse. And would anybody have ha a half a brain plow with a plow and a boulder? No. You'll break the plow, obviously. He's, he's saying some rhetoric here because he's grasping at straws to try to get their attention. Because while men slept... The enemy has done this. He sowed tares among the wheat, and he did it while men slept. You have turned judgment into gall, and the fruit of righteousness in the hemlock. What do you expect? What do you expect to happen? And look at the arrogancy of the leaders. Verse 13, ye which rejoice in a thing of naught, which say, have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? If I can just illustrate it, that's the people of D.C. standing up saying, we've gained the power and we've done it in our own might. We are invincible. We have the horn of a goat. Verse 14, but behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, saith the Lord God of hosts. And you can still hear them people with their full arrogancy saying, No, 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 we, we, we have the horn of power. We are senators and we are representatives and we have you seen like. And the Assyrians came. And they couldn't get in. So they just besieged them and surrounded them. 
And three long years, they sat there. And the food ran out. And the water ran out. And those wealthy people with pockets full of gold. And if you buy silver and gold, Lord bless you. <laughs> but you can't eat that. They sieged them. And they waited. Until in their pompous arrogancy, eventually they died starved with pockets full of gold. And they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of the wilderness. It's over. Doomsday. So it's over. So let it be written. So let it be done. It's over. It's written in the prophets. We know this. You can't fight prophecy, so why try? We know that at the end of the book says there'll be a one-world government and you won't be able to buy or sell unless you have the passport or the mark, right? So why even bother standing up? I mean, it's in the prophecy. It's written on the wall. You don't have a chance. Doomsday is coming. So why even bother standing up? Why bother doing anything? Why bother, right? I mean, it's all written in the book, right? Maybe. Maybe we should peek a little bit into chapter 7. Look at 7.1. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of their latter growth. The latter growth in the, in the Hebrew actually is the opposite. When you, when you see the latter rains, it's actually, remember that it's reversed because of their calendar. So the latter is actually springtime. So when you see the beginning of the shootings up of the latter growth, and lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. In other words, while everything is so green and lush during the springtime rain and at the king's mowings and trimmings, everything is beautiful and vibrant. It came to pass that when they had made an end of eating the grass, these grasshoppers of the land, then I said... Oh, Lord God, you got to understand this is a total devastation. When everything is supposed to be as green and as lush and as full as possible during the latter rains, the Lord shows him grasshoppers that actually come through as a plague and eat everything green so that it's absolutely gone and barren and devastated to the point where it scares the prophet. And look what the prophet says. Look at the response. Now, this is just a vision. Then I said, O Lord God, forgive. I beseech thee, one man. It doesn't say we. It says I. I, Lord God, forgive. I beseech thee. By whom shall Jacob arise? We don't have a champion. We are poor, for he is small. And look at verse 3. The Lord repented for this. It shall not be, saith the Lord. It was in writing. Zion is falling. You will starve to death. No one will live. But because one person intercedes and stands up, the Lord God repents and says, it shall not be. Because a God who would send his only begotten son, heaven's darling, to die on a cross, innocent as he was, for my sin, 
Is there any more gracious and merciful than that? His mercy is new every morning. Even when we rebel to his face. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. Even when it goes against the writing of his own pen. Why would you not bow the knee to a king like that? Now we know why those men gave up their nets, gave up their jobs, and risked their lives for such a king as this. Maybe some of us should do the same. You've been listening to Time in the Vineyard with pastor-teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast was brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. For more information, you can call the church at 330-554-7606 or check us out on the web at libertyvalleychurch.org. That's libertyvalleychurch.org.